welcome to our brand new program, Faith of Our Fathers, featuring some of the greatest preachers from the 20th century. We start with Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, an evangelist of incredible intellect, extraordinary language skills, and a true expositor of the scriptures. Today's message is what it means to be a true disciple. You know, I happen to have been, when I was a small boy, I was brought up in California, just south of San Francisco. And as a boy, uh, when I first went to school, just shortly before I was six years old, uh, an experience happened that a psychiatrist would probably say was a trauma. Uh, it had a great deal to do with all the rest of the course of my life. I happened when I was not quite six, I knew how to read and write very well. I had already read several volumes. In fact, uh, I think they gave me Dickens' Tale of Two Cities on my sixth birthday, and I was reading that. Well, when I went to school on, at my sixth birthday, just at that time, uh, uh, 40 minutes later, the teacher took me by the hand and took me out and over to the second grade. And as I walked out, the 40 little uh, pupils in first grade stared after me with an evil look on their eyes because I had showed them up. And then the 40 of the second graders stared worse when I came in because there was that kid that was showing them up. And it began to be bad for me at recess time. And very early in life, I uh, got the idea that I was in a world that was hostile to me. And the only thing for me to do was to develop a big turtle shell and force my way through by bull strength and get what I was going after. And it didn't help me any that later on, around the sixth grade, I skipped another grade. It didn't help in, as far as relationships were concerned. And I, I suppose that little by little I got the attitude, well, this is the way the world is made, and the only thing to do is, to, if you know what's right, to stand up for what's right, and if you see anything that's wrong, hit it as hard as you can hit it. Well, a little over a year ago, <clears throat> Lee Heron, who's the president of the Franklin Wholesale Hardware Company in Philadelphia, a man I led to Christ about five years ago, was chairman of a committee for my 25th anniversary, because I've now been 27 years pastor of the church where I still am in Philadelphia. And they were having a big celebration in Philadelphia for my 25th anniversary. They took town hall, they expected several thousand people to be there. They were going to have two or 300 uh, people on the platform, the mayor and somebody from the governor and the council of churches and the presbytery and the synod and the Bible Society and what have you. And Lee Heron, the chairman of the committee, came out to my home and, uh, a week or so before the meeting, and he said, now, Donald, this is going to be a big affair. And he said, the boys asked me if I'd come out and get a promise from you. He says, everybody knows that if anybody ever starts to say anything good about you, that you run your fingers through your hair and put your head down between your knees and you squirm a hole through the chair. Now, for once, you're to sit up and take it. And if they compliment you and say something nice about you, you grin and you don't not duck your head. He said, they're going to exalt Christ and not you. 
So take it. He said, you know, it's been wonderful for me, chairman of this committee, to get all this ready. He says, my, these fellows love you. A little while later, he left, and I walked out in the garden up and down, and they loved me. Why? It had never entered my mind in a half a century of living that anybody loved me outside my family. And, and I always said that uh, because I had such a, a complex that everybody's against me, I don't think I'd have ever gotten married if I hadn't gone out as a missionary and the, the Lord sent a girl out as a missionary in the same mission and there was no other girl, there was no other fella. So that was it, he says. So. And so aside from the fact that I knew my family did love me, I just, I just took it for granted that I was there in the world, that my business was to stand for the right and hit what was wrong. And I walked up and down and I thought, he says they love me. And it began to act as a sort of an acid on the shell I had put around myself. And a year ago last January, I wrote an editorial in our magazine, a two-page editorial called A New Year's Resolution. And in it, I told a bit of this experience I've related and said, I'm making a change in my life from now on. Uh, I'm going to live with people on the basis of whether or not God has saved them. Now, if a man's good enough to go to heaven through the grace of God, why well, I'm going to work with him here on earth now. And if I find that I disagree with him in 5%, what I'm going to do is get along with him in 95% and shut my mouth about the 5% that I see in him that I don't agree with because maybe he sees 10% in me that he doesn't agree with. And I'm going to reserve my fire for the unregenerate for those that have great heresies and that stand against the truth. Well, in the last year and two or three months, it's been amazing the way God has brought me into contact with other people. My, the difference it has made. And I have discovered that as I looked around afterwards, that in the fundamentalist world in the United States, there are thousands of fundamentalists that had made the same mistake I had, and they were living in the midst of this world without the love that is to mark the believer in Christ. And I have no doubt whatsoever you have in Seattle people who are going to be in heaven together forever, but you can't get them together in Seattle. Now that laughter is, is indicative. It is unfortunate that it exists. Several years ago, I was in Canada at a meeting and Leon Sullivan, the former president of the Christian businessmen of Philadelphia was there. And somebody at the table in a dinner said, think of it, two people here from, two fundamental leaders from Philadelphia using their knives and forks on the food and not on each other. Well, it shamed me and I went back to Philadelphia and I called in a private dinner, I called together 25 of the leading men in Philadelphia who happened to be leaders in many phases of work. There was the editor of the Sunday School Times, the editor of Our Hope, and myself, the editor of Eternity Magazine. And there was the head of the Gideons, and there was the head of the Christian Layman's Association, Christian businessmen. And there were four radio preachers. One of them, Percy Crawford, with a coast-to-coast -coast broadcast, George Palmer with his morning cheer, with. 50,000 names on his mailing list and a great work in Philadelphia. I invited every one of these men to dinner privately without their knowing that the rest of them were going to be there. 
Some of them hadn't been talking to each other for five years. One of them, fundamentalist, I'll change the name uh, so that you couldn't guess who it was, two men who have radio programs, both fundamental men. And one of them hated the other so much that when he was interviewing, we'll call this one uh, Gerald, that wasn't his name at all. Uh, but Mr. X, when he was interviewing a sailor during the war, he said, where do you live, sailor? Sailor said, I live on Gerald Street. Gerald, if I lived on that street, I'd move. Now, that's horrible, you see, that a man should so forget himself that he should publicly slander another born-again believer who's going to be in heaven. Now, my dear friends, that situation exists in the fundamentalist life of the United States. I don't think there's any doubt of the fact that there is more kindness. Now, some people may want to get up and walk out, but please wait till the end of the sermon. I think <clears throat> that there's more kindness among a bunch of Hollywood actresses toward each other than there is among, among a bunch of fundamentalist women sometimes and that there's less gossip and less narrowness. Someone told me that fundamentalist women gossip worse than prostitutes. Well, there's no doubt of the fact, and I'm going to tell you a couple of stories in a few moments that indicate that what I say is true, that these things are true. And I know the secret. I know the reason why this exists. And I level the charge at Christian people. And I say they disobey the word of God and they do not have the love of Jesus Christ which would transform their whole life and their being and would make things entirely different if for one moment they started to live as Christ said Christians should live. I want to take one word in the New Testament, the word disciple, and I want to look at it just a moment with you. A disciple is someone who follows the Lord, who so rigorously follows the Lord that he disciplines himself, discipline. Do you ever stop to realize that discipline and disciple are the same word? I want to be a disciple, therefore I disciple myself, discipline. And I say, this one thing I do, I go this way, I walk for the Lord. And I conform my life to please my Savior and to follow him. Now, it is in this sense that I want to put before you this question and ask you, do you want to be the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? In fact, I will speak a sentence to you that was spoken by the man who had been born blind and whom Jesus healed. He spoke the sentence in irony, but I speak it to you in level calm. You remember Jesus had healed him and the Pharisees came and said, give God the glory. This man, Jesus, is a sinner. He said, whether he's a sinner or not, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. And they said to him again, give God the glory. And they kept pestering him until finally he turned to them and said, will you also be his disciples? And they were furious. And they said, we be Moses' disciples. We be not his disciples. But that question I put to you and I say, will you also be his disciples? Oh, you say, yes, yes. Well, just as the Bible says in Acts that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, so they were all called disciples, and then somebody began to call them Christians, we need to turn it around, and it would be wonderful if all the Christians in Seattle could be called disciples and could really be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Will you also be his disciples? Now, when you say his, why, that implies ownership. And that everything you have is held to be his in order that he might be your Lord. In the suburbs of Philadelphia a few years ago, before the Depression it was, there was a dear old Scotch lady there who was a very wealthy family, and they had a magnificent place, garden, chauffeur, servants, complete with a beautiful greenhouse. And one day her chauffeur drove up to the home of a girl who was in her Sunday school class. This Scotch woman had a name that began with Mac, and everybody called her Mrs. Mac. And Mrs. Mac's chauffeur drove up to, to this girl's house and handed her a florist box. When the girl opened it, she saw a bunch of roses that had been cut probably four or five days. The green, the petals were dropping, the, the petals were spotted, the leaves were drying up, and she saw that undoubtedly it was an old bunch of roses. And she wondered why on earth she'd been given that bunch of roses. And that day she happened to meet Mrs. Mack on the street of the village and said, Mrs. Mack, I got the roses you sent to me this morning. And she emphasized this morning because she thought that possibly they'd been given to the chauffeur three or four days before and he'd forgotten them. But Mrs. Mack said, oh, they were beautiful. I cut them the other day out in the greenhouse. They were so beautiful. I put them in my bedroom and I've been enjoying them all week, their beauty and their fragrance. And this morning I saw they were pretty well finished and the petals were beginning to drop. So I put them in a box and sent them over to you. And the girl said, I don't understand, Mrs. Mack. She said, well, last week, Mr. Mack and I, just after sunset, were driving down Lincoln Highway, US 30, that goes through the village in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and said, we pulled up by the drugstore, and Mr. Mack went in on an errand, and I was sitting in the car in the dark, and a group of high school girls came along, and I heard one of them say, talking about the meetings that are being held over at the church, oh, of course I mean to be a Christian someday, but now while I'm young, I want to have a good time. And the girl said, I, I did say that, but I didn't know you were listening. Ms. Mack says, that's the way so many people are. They look at their lives and they see their life as beautiful as a bunch of roses. And they say, Lord, I'm taking my life and I'm having the fragrance and I'm having the beauty. And when it's old and the petals begin to fall and I no longer am as popular as I can be while I'm young, you can have what's left. And the vast tragedy is that many people in this room know that you have spent your youth on yourself and you're giving to God the fag end of what's left. And it's a crime. And it is not discipleship. And I'm calling all of you for in his grace. God in his grace, he'll take you any day. If you're 99 today, he'll begin with you today. God is the greatest junk dealer in the history of the world. There never was a second-hand merchant the equal to God. Down in the human heart, we sing this hymn, down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, Feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving hand, wakened with kindness. Chords that were broken will vibrate once more. And God can do that. Where you could do nothing with a broken violin string, God can. And your life is never beyond him. And he'll take you as of tonight. But most of us would have to say, if we were honest with the Bible, instead of saying he gave himself for us, we would have to take it as though he said he gave himself for little bits of me now and again. Because that's all he gets from most of us. He gave himself for little bits of me now and again. Can you say he gave himself for me? Well, then why don't you deliver the goods? 
true discipleship is that they first gave their own selves to the Lord. When Jesus was brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, we read in John 13, in John 18 rather, that the high priest asked Jesus concerning his disciples and his doctrine. Now it's very significant. He didn't ask him concerning his doctrine and his disciples, but he asked him concerning his disciples and his doctrine. For that's the thing that challenges the world. That's the thing the world can't get by. A man who is transformed by Jesus Christ. Men look at us before they look at the doctrine. They see us. They see our lives, our habits, our bearing, our attitude toward all things. And then they form their conclusions from what they see in us. What we do and what we do not do. And if they like what they see in us, they may look past us to Christ. But if they do not like what they see in us, they will never look past us to Christ. If we're narrow-minded, cantankerous, living under law with a set of rules, if our Christianity consists of saying, I don't dance, don't play cards, don't go to the movies, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't do this, don't, 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 you're never going to win anybody to Christ. You're the worst advertisement for Christ that anybody could ever be. You know, there is a bastard sanctification in the world today in the midst of fundamentalist churches that is a horrible thing. For anyone who says, well, now my religion consists in saying I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't do this, that is not the way God wants you to live. God wants you to live with Christ possessing your heart and mind. And that everything we do, we do because we want to be well-pleasing unto him. I have been 27 or 8 years in my church, and I have never yet preached a sermon against things. I've never preached a sermon against drinking. I've never preached a sermon against smoking. I've never preached a sermon against the movies. I've never preached a sermon against canast or bridge or television or any other thing. Well, someone says, what's going to happen to your young people? They become missionaries and ministers. We've sent about 100 out of our own church into the ministry and the mission field. How? Why, simply because we try to get their eyes so filled with the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that the things of earth grow strangely dead in the light of his glory and grace. Now, very often we alienate people simply because of the fact that men see us and our inconsistencies instead of us adorning the doctrine. The offense of the cross is bad enough because every true Christian, you see, is born with two strikes against him, born again, because we go out with something that is an offense. Because don't forget, true Christianity is a terrible offense to the world. They don't care how religious you are as long as you aren't Christian. You can go out and you can start a campaign to clean Seattle up, to stop it gambling or anything else, and the rest of the gamblers and the rest of them say, boys, these people all sporadically, they burst out that way. Let's just uh, move over the county line for a few months and it'll all quiet down, then we'll move back again. But it's not the Christian's business to try and clean up Seattle. It's not the Christian's business to try to legislate. I remember when I first came to Philadelphia, in 1926, they said, they sent to me from the ministerial union, said, Dr. Barnos, will you pass a petition in your church 
to stop the sesquicentennial World's Fair in Philadelphia from being open on Sunday? I said, no, I will not. Well, why not? I said, because I don't believe in Christians trying to legislate for the unregenerate. I said, would you want me to pass a petition to force Jews to take the communion? Well, of course not. Well, I said, who can take the communion? A born-again person. Well, who can keep Sunday? A resurrected person. And if you try to force a non-resurrected person to keep Sunday, well, all you're doing is taking the Adamic nature and trying to force it where God never meant it to be forced. God never told the church that it was to try to clean up the world. One of the great tragedies of our Christian life is a bunch of people that go around organizing crusades for righteousness. God does not want us to organize crusades for righteousness. He wants us to preach the cross. Do you remember when the fiery serpents had bitten the people in the desert? Now, if that happened today, why, there'd be somebody that would rush down to the printer and get a couple of men and say, we have now formed a society for the extermination of fiery serpents. Sign on the dotted line, the dues are two dollars. And they would get nice little pledge cards and say, will you join the society for the extermination of fiery serpents? And down there, half a mile away in the camp, you'd find a man that had been bitten. And you would say to the man, look, you've been bitten, you know how terrible this is, won't you join the Society for the Extermination of Fiery Serpents? And you prop him up and you give him a pen, and with his glazed eyes he can hardly see, but he signs your card and drops dead, a full-fledged member for the Society for the Extermination of Fiery Serpents. I tell you, my dear friends, God Almighty never in this world ever told a Christian to fight sin. He told Moses to look to the, to the serpent lifted up and that that's the thing that would take away the sin that was in the world. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he says, as the son of man, even as the, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christianity is not a system of legalism. Now, there are three verses in the New Testament that Jesus spoke that are the marks of a disciple. The first is in John 8, 31. It says, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Now I want you to see exactly what that meant to continue in his word. When Jesus came into this world, he was a radical in his preaching. Now if the one ignorant person in Seattle is in here, don't go out and say that I said Jesus was a communist. He wasn't anything of the kind. I'm as much against communism as the Pope is. But uh, I tell you, but very, very definitely, we must definitely recognize the fact that when Jesus came into this world, he said things that were colossally revolutionary. Why, when Jesus preached to the Jews, it was as amazing as if someone came to you on Sunday and said, now I want every one of you to form a line and march past the communion table, grab a handful of the communion bread, and take some of the communion wine and go out in the gutter, throw it in the gutter, and stamp it in the gutter. For Jesus said, what did he say? He said, I'm through with this house. You've called it a temple, he says, but I call it a den of thieves. 
Well, boy, that was something. And when he died on the cross, they tore the veil in two from top to bottom. And he said, we're through with Moses. We're through with lambs. We're through with priesthood. We're through with buildings. Now God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And when Jesus preached, why, every place he went, why, they just fulminated in questions, questions, questions. How can a man be born when he's old? How can he give us his flesh to eat? What manner of saying is this? Ye shall seek me and not find me, and whither I go ye cannot come. Is he going to commit suicide? And the Bible says there were sharp divisions because of him. Because the things he was saying ripped across the face of religion and brought them back to reality. And we need to rip across the face of fundamentalist religion in the United States and bring people out of what they've been doing and get them back to Christianity. Now, don't go out and anybody say that Dr. Barnhouse declared he wasn't fundamental. If I have to spell it for you in ABC, I believe in the inspiration of the scriptures, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Jesus, the historicity of the miracles, the substitutionary atonement through the shedding of his precious blood. I believe in the resurrection from the dead. I believe he ascended into heaven and I'm a premillenarian believer in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that's fundamental. I'll sign any fundamental creed you want that I believe it. But believe me, my dear friends, I want to get fundamentalists back to showing the love of Jesus Christ. Now, it wasn't the disciples who asked these questions. Although some of the disciples, you see, were, didn't know what to do when they, when they were about to go away because everybody was leaving him. Jesus said to the disciples, will you also go away? They said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. But what they did was they believed as much as they heard, and as soon as they heard something more, they believed it too. They continued in his word. They were following the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to John 8, 31, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. I read in John 13, 35, by this, shall men know that ye are my disciples indeed if ye love one another now how are you going to prove to me that you're a christian you're going to prove to me that you're a christian by loving people that disagree with you you're going to prove to me that you're a christian by loving high episcopalians or pentecostalists or nazarenians or calvinists or arminians now, don't misunderstand. I have a definite theological position, but I want to love men. I want to love men that disagree with me. By this shall men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Last September, I went to preach in a certain town in Michigan. It was a meeting like this, church perhaps a little larger, a few more people. And at the close of the meeting, there was a certain woman she was a very beautiful woman, about 37 or 8 years of age. And the pastor introduced me to her and he said, I want you to help her. And she said that she'd stay after the meeting the next night. And he said to me, you know, that woman, he said, I wouldn't have blamed her if she had left this church and never darkened the door of it again. Some of the things that some of the women members in my church did to her. He said, it hurt me. He said, I'll tell you the story. He said about three years ago, she was waiting for her fourth child. She was not saved. She had never been in the church at that time. 
Her family was wealthy. They owned a factory in a nearby town. And she was married and living in that city in Michigan in a very nice home, had a lovely car, dressed very well. And while she was waiting for her fourth baby, her husband got involved with another woman, went south with the woman, suddenly put a suit in for a divorce and asked his wife to grant it at once because the other woman was going to have a child and when the divorce went through, he married the other woman and she had a child three or four months later, leaving this lovely woman up in Michigan, uh, divorced and with four children. In her great sorrow, she walked out of her house and down the street and into the first church building she went to to see the pastor. Now in the providence of God, it was a good church. It was a fundamentalist Baptist church. It could have been a Mormon church, a Christian science church, a Unitarian church, a modernistic church, but it was a fundamental Baptist church and the preacher led her to Christ and she was saved. Thank God that happened that way. Well, she was really saved. She started the church and the rest of the women treated her as though she had cholera or diphtheria. She was a divorced woman. As a matter of fact, she was a holy, good, pure, fine Christian woman who had been abandoned by a no good man. In the second winter of her Christianity, the pastor announced that they were going to have five missionary days, five Wednesdays. Missionaries were coming into town on five days and in the afternoon they would have meetings in somebody's home and at night in the church. And he asked for women to volunteer for their homes. And she said, you can have one of the meetings in my home. And they chose hers for the fourth week. The first week, about 60 women went to Mrs. A's house, and about 60 women to Mrs. B's house, and about 60 women to Mrs. C's house on the third Wednesday. On the fourth Wednesday, this woman went down to the bus station and picked up the missionary who was coming in from Detroit, took her to her home, gave her lunch, and they waited for the other women to arrive. Everything was all set out with cupcakes and coffee and tea ready. Everything all ready. And at 2.30, no one was there. 2.45, no one was there. Five minutes of three, she called the preacher. The preacher said, well, I don't understand. It's Wednesday and the missionary's there. No women are there. No, not, not one. Well, he said, wait, I'll call you back. And the preacher said to me, I called the president of my women's missionary society and I asked why they weren't there. And she said, well, I'm not going to lie to you. You might as well know the truth. We all decided that none of us were going to darken the door of that divorcee. That night, I had the privilege of preaching to most of those women. <laughs> I told them that I thought I understood the spirit of Jesus Christ when he said to people, you dirty hypocrites. You whited sepulchers, inside filled with dead men's bones, and outside a coat of whitewash. I tell you, women, that 20 prostitutes would not have treated another woman the way those 20 fundamentalist women did. It was a devilish thing to do. How could it have happened in a fundamentalist church of women who say, I believe in the virgin birth, I believe in the divinity of Christ, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
I would not darken the door of Mary Magdalene or the woman of Samaria. You see? Now, sometimes men are just as bad. It's not an indictment against women. Don't misunderstand. It's an indictment against a fundamentalist, narrow-minded spirit that lacks love. There is among people who are fundamental a cutthroat attitude even towards born-again believers who won't cross their T's at the same angle or dot their I's in the same way. I have known of fundamentalist people who lie about other Christians because they don't agree with them as to whether the church is to pass through the tribulation or not. Now, I believe the church is not going to pass the tribulation, but believe me, if another believer wants to believe that it is, well, God bless you. I hope when the rapture comes, I can stand by and say, I told you so, as we go up. <laughs> but most certainly, my dear friends, it's not a matter to separate Christian brethren. By this shall men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Who gives you the right to judge? Judge, judge, judge! Let me tell you one more story. About a year ago, we began to get letters. We get thousands of letters, but this was extraordinary because the first one came through and it had a check for $100. And it was signed by the name of Sandra Savoro. And a month later, there was a letter and a check for $100. Sandra Savoro. And the next month, there was a letter and a check for $100. Well, when someone begins to listen on the radio and drop checks for $100 for us from the city of Detroit, why, well, we wrote her a very nice letter. <laughs> and we said, in November, I'm going to be holding a meeting. Billy Graham was just finishing his campaign in uh, Detroit, and he closed on Saturday and Sunday nights telling people that I was going to be in on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for Bible teaching and that he hoped that all of the people that had made their decisions would be there. And on Tuesday nights, as I was greeting people at the close, I saw a woman and a man coming over here and the woman was very distinguished. She had on a very, very fine fur coat and she was well-groomed. And you could tell right away she was a woman who probably had $1,000 worth of clothes on her in that moment. And a moment later, she came up and she said, Dr. Barnos, I am Sandra Savoro. I said, oh, I'm so happy to meet you. And we be, said, I want you to meet Mr. Green. She says, he is my assistant. I didn't know assistant of what, because I didn't have the remotest idea who she was or what she did. I didn't know at all. I got a big surprise a minute later, for we began to talk, because he and she, she said, Mr. Graham, says, he, he, Mr. Green, he was saved last Saturday night, the Billy Graham meeting. She says, oh, I'm so happy. She said, two of my staff and five of my pupils have been saved uh, during the Billy Graham meetings. And I thought, isn't this wonderful? So three or four of us, we went over across the street to get some ice cream. And I, I said, now you said your staff and your disciples, uh, uh, your pupils, what, what uh, do you do? And uh, who are these pupils? Oh, she says, I have the finest school of ballet dancing in the United States. Well, I had a double take for a moment, and I said, how did you begin to become interested in our program? She says, well, you see, I was a Roman Catholic, and Mr. Green was a Roman Catholic until four days ago. Now, she said, uh, I began to listen to your broadcast, and I soon realized that salvation was not by good works, by baptism and by the Mass, 
and by extreme unction and by suffering for yourself in purgatory. And she said, I listened week after week, and one afternoon when you finished, I heard your broadcast, and I said, I'm going to church tonight. And she said, I went down the street, and I walked into the first church I saw. And again, thank God, it happened to be a good church in that particular place in Detroit. It was a Christian and Missionary Alliance tabernacle she walked into. And they were having a week of meetings. And she went Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. And on Friday night, she walked up to confess Christ publicly. Though she had been saved, she sat in her room listening to the radio. Now, here's what happened. She happened to go and join another church. She happened to join a, a very, very good Presbyterian church with a fundamental minister. And she got interested and she began sending the money to us. She says, Dr. Barnhouse, do you think I ought to give up teaching ballet? I said, listen, Madame Savaro, I am not the Holy Spirit. Well, she said, I'm so glad you say this because Dr. So-and-so at such and such a fine fundamental work in Detroit, he tells me I must stop it. Now, she said, I gave him $2,500 for his work. He says, I must stop the school where I get my money. But he took the money. <laughs> and I said to her, don't let anybody play God for you. And if somebody here tonight would say, oh, but Dr. Barnhouse, she certainly cannot teach people to be ballet dancers. Can a born-again fundamental Christian do that? Well, she's doing it. She's born again. She's fundamental. And she's doing it. Oh, but mustn't she stop? Well, don't you try to play God for her. She opened her pocketbook and pulled a letter out. She says, I want you to read a letter from one of my pupils. And here was a letter from a girl in New York. And if you wish, tonight she is premier ballerina in Oscar Hammerstein's Me and Juliet on Broadway. And here was what she wrote. Dear Sandra, life is so different since you led me to Christ. I never forget the day I was down on my knees in your office. I carry the Gospel of John with me now and I'm memorizing it and reading it. And between the acts and so on, I've been reading the Gospel of John and it's such a blessing to me. Well, you know, I looked and I said, well, thank God that God was able to send a foreign missionary to ballet students because I'm quite sure most of you people would have never have been able to reach them. They'd have taken one look at most of you and gone the other direction. Don't play Holy Spirit for other people. But someone says, but doctor, you've got to have standards. <laughs> Listen, my dear friend, stop yelling about standards because generally you mean your standards for somebody else. See, I told them about the old woman. The preacher began to pray. Lord, deal with the gambler. She said, amen, brother. Lord, we pray thee to deal with the moonshiners. Hallelujah, brother. Pour it on. Lord, deal with them that's in the numbers rackets. Hallelujah, brother. Praise God. Lord, deal with the gangsters. Amen, brother. Lord, we pray thee for them that's taken snuff. She said, what's he meddling for? You see, my friends, do you understand what I'm saying is this, 
that most of you people, when you make rules for other people, you're making them because your old satanic nature wants to play God for somebody else and you want to reduce them to bondage. That's the reason why some people do not want to believe that when you're once saved, you're always saved. Because if you can deny the security of the believer, you can reduce a soul to bondage and you can be a little proud yourself. While if you believe that if you're once saved, you're always saved, why you have to say, Lord, I deserve to go to hell, but I'm going to heaven. And it's all of grace. And I'm nothing. See, there's nothing that can reduce a man to nothing as quickly as to believe that you begin by grace, you stand by grace, you walk by grace, you're saved by grace, that you ought to go to hell, but you are going to heaven. Well, where's the place for me to glory? There is none. Boasting is excluded. You see, now if God Almighty wants to save a ballet teacher, the next night after I was there, there was her picture in the paper two columns wide and the announcement that a motor maker had just given $100,000 for her to prepare Swan Lake by Tchaikovsky and five other uh, ballets for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. And the Detroit paper said, Madame Savaro is Detroit's number one artistic figure. And the, Mr. Green, her assistant, said, you know what happened recently when they were making this deal, that this man was to put up $100,000? In a millionaire home out in Gross Point, you know, one of the types of places where you can have 100 people in the drawing rooms, and great big Turkish carpets scattered around from room to room. Everybody was standing there taking cocktails and so on, and Sandra Savoro said, I'm, I have to go. They said, why? It's only 9 o'clock. She said, I have a radio program I have to listen to and I never, never let anything stop me. Well, they said, listen here. Oh no, she said, it's a religious program and I don't want to spoil you. I don't try to force it on anybody else. Well, then we listen, we listen, and they call around, hey, Sandra's gonna leave because she wants to listen to some preacher. She says, now look, I will go and I will not bother you. Oh, but you must listen. She said, I will stay if you promise that nobody will say one word till he gets through. So they all promised and they turned on Barnhouse preaching on, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And about 80 people in a millionaire motor maker's home listened to the gospel for 25 minutes and when it was over they turned off the radio and she was answering questions until 1.30 in the middle of the night. Isn't that marvelous? Now there isn't many of you that could have gotten into Gross Point into the millionaires' homes to preach the gospel. Oh no, you say, we're fundamental. We wouldn't associate with people like that. A man said to me one day recently, Dr. Barnhouse, you should not have dinner with some of the people you have dinner with, great modernists. Because in the last year and a half, I've had dinner with some of the biggest modernists in the United States. You shouldn't do it. I said, why not? Well, after all, look who you are and look what they are. I said, well, I'll tell you, you know, Jesus companied with sinners. Because, you know, if, you, if, if instead of Jesus in Jerusalem, if Jesus had been in Seattle, where do you think you'd have found him? You'd have never found him outside of a beer joint. Read your Bible. They called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. They said he companies with harlots. 
Do you think he lived in the nice suburbs? The Lord Jesus Christ constantly associated with a scumming off scouring of the earth. And he said about the good people, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And he went and associated with the glutton and the wine-bibber, and they called him, they sneered, and they said, he's a friend of sinners. Thank God he was a friend of sinners. Oh, my dear friends, what do you think would happen if you went home tonight and said, please, God, from now on, I'll never do anything but love people? Why, if some of you would go home and get down on your knees and say, Lord, there's a woman in this town, I've been ripping her every time I got a chance, and I've been jealous of her, and I've gossiped about her, and I've lied about her, and I'm going to crawl to her tomorrow and tell her that I ought to go to hell for what I've done, but Jesus paid it all, and I'm sorry, and I hope she'll forgive me. You'd have a revival in Seattle. But my dear friends, you're like a, a coffee percolator. You know, when I came home in 1925, I discovered coffee percolators, all the gadgets. I'd been in Europe for seven years, and when I came back, I discovered windshield wipers and radios and coffee percolators, all the things that had been invented in America. And there was a, a double-barrel coffee percolator, all coffee up here in white water down here. And I said, but how does the coffee get down here? And they put it in the fire, and all of a sudden, the water went up into the coffee grounds. And somehow, I don't know, yeah, I don't understand the coffee percolator. I can drink the coffee, but it goes up there, and it goes down, and it comes down coffee. Well, you see, here's the up part with the coffee grounds, and here's the lower part with the water. And most of you have got all coffee grounds up here and nothing down here. And what you need is to be put in the fire. And if you suddenly got in the fire, you'd get the coffee grounds of Christian experience out of your brain and down into your heart. And that's what's needed in Seattle. You know, sometimes I think if a good hydrogen bomb should hit smack in the middle of Boeing aircraft factory and blow all of Seattle down, and if you fled with just a few things in your hands and took to the mountains where you wouldn't ask if a person was a fundamentalist or you wouldn't ask if they danced or went to the movies, but where everybody would be working for everybody and loving one another and preaching Christ and living Christ might be the best thing that ever happened for Seattle. Pray, I pray to God it will never happen. But don't you think we could have spirituality without a bomb? I wonder. Listen to my verses. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. By this shall men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And then I won't even mention the last text because it would take me too late. He says in John 15, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. That's what he wants. Are you willing to pay the price to be his disciples? Are you willing to try to stop being God for other people? Are you willing to submit yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, I have trouble enough to run my own life without deciding whether Mrs. So-and-so should wear cosmetics or not? May God search our hearts because I tell you, if a good epidemic of love should break out among you, it's catching. And God will bless. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.